If you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, I'm I'm just guessing that you have at moments felt God ask you to do something that uh, maybe scared you, uh, maybe it intimidated you, maybe it actually touched on your deepest insecurities and fears, but you knew it was something God was calling you to do. Sometimes it made you very uncomfortable. I remember when we uh, were first planning the church out here, you know, we met in this little um, sh- shopping center, event center next door, and and uh, we found out we might not have a place to meet anymore. And then God opened up this big space in a miraculous sort of um, amazing way. But they they only gave us nine months. And so we're like, how do we make a little corner here for our little group of people to meet? Because it was just this big old empty Ace Hardware, you know, white VCT flooring and uh, just this big giant space. And I remember distinctly, like how exciting it was that this opportunity was opening up. But I was really scared about it, actually, because here's where my mind was like, if we end up moving into this giant space, 18,000 square feet, And nine months later, we got to, like, go back and go meet at, like, the school cafeteria or, I don't know, like, you know, a little coffee shop or something down the road. That's not going to go well. That's going to tank this whole thing. And it really worried me, and I had a lot of insecurity and a lot of fear over that as, as we first launched the church. And I just want to say... You know, we, we took the step that God was calling us to do in spite of that fear and insecurity. And, man, as we watched these baptisms this weekend, these two, and, and eight last night, including a mom and her daughter, and, and just awesome stuff that God's doing as he draws people to himself. Um, I'm so thankful that we stepped forward and that we, we chose to do that in spite of the fear, in spite of the place that we were at. And, <laughs> thanks. And some of you right now are in a, in a situation um, where in your life you're, you're experiencing some real anxiety. Maybe as we talk about this and I bring this up, there's like a lump in your throat. Um, some of you are in a situation where you're like, I, I know God loves me, but I'm just scared or I'm confused. And honestly, some of you are in a place where you just don't have much faith right now. And if that's you, as we go through this passage here in just a moment, I just want to invite you to really pay attention to what Jesus does in this passage into what Jesus says, because I think it might be of encouragement here to you today. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn on over to John chapter 6. And uh, if you have your paper Bibles, that's always great, because you can write notes or things that God impresses on your heart. And then when you go back and read it, that passage later, um, he reminds you of those things, because uh, I know you remember my sermons like years down the road. Uh-huh. Uh, so anyway, um, but if not, you can just follow along on the screens right behind me. And here's what John chapter 6, verse 1 says. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. Same name, uh, two different names for the same place. And um, so what's happening here, just to catch you up, if, if you remember last week we were in this epic sermon. So Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath, and then there's this epic long sermon. It was a long chapter, and uh, we, we dive, dove into some pretty deep theological stuff in, over the last week or two. Um, and so now, after that sermon, after that time of ministry, John says we're, we're transitioning to a new, a new time. 
And so it says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed, and verse 2, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Okay, so just just to set the stage for this, because if if you grew up in church, I have a feeling you kind of know where this story's going, right? Um, Now, if you didn't... um, that's okay. I'm just going to, spoiler alert, okay? So if you don't want to, like, ruin the story, you can plug your ears. Um, but I'm just saying the book's been out for a while, so, you know. Um, so uh, he's going he's gonna feed a crowd here. He's going to take basically nothing and feed a giant crowd. It's, it's an amazing, miraculous event we're going to see here in just a minute. And actually, this miracle we're going to see is in all four accounts of Jesus' life that we call the Gospels. And what's interesting about it is it's the miracle that simultaneously affects the most people. So there's a crowd. We're going to see this crowd of 5,000 men. Scholars believe um, we're talking about 15 to 20,000 probably, or at least 10 to 20,000 men, women, and children. Massive crowd of people. And they all are going to witness this incredible miracle, the sign that Jesus is going to do. And I think since there's so many people there who witnessed uh, this miracle, who were there at this moment, I also think this probably would have been the easiest miracle to discredit if you were um, against Jesus in the first century. Because all you would have had to do, you know, the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's written a little bit later. Um, The other three scholars believe were written a little bit earlier. And these stories have been out, um, these accounts, long, you know, just shortly after the resurrection of Jesus. And it would have been really easy for a whole bunch of people to have gone, that never happened. He, he didn't really do that. Here's what happened. Just some little boy had a lunch, and he shared it, and it just inspired everyone to, like, share. <laughs> Seriously, that's the theory that skeptical scholars have put out and sort of held to. The only problem is this. Number one, there were all these eyewitnesses, right? So this would have been really easy to debunk the story very quickly. But then, really, here, here's... Here's the real reason why this doesn't make any sense. Because if you think that, um, you will completely miss out on the whole point of what Jesus is saying and trying to do in this miracle, in this sign. If you remember last week, the healing sign points to the fact that Jesus is the one with divine authority over the Sabbath. And then in Jesus' sermon, he makes this ludicrous claim, if you just believe he's some good guy, some good teacher, to have authority to actually give life and to have authority over final judgment. That is shocking in the culture. No wonder they're trying to kill him, right? And so this miraculous sign that we're about ready to see is actually meant, it's placed as John, who's a brilliant author, places it in his account of Jesus here. Um, He is is placing it here to set the stage for another complex and epic sermon that Jesus is going to do that we're going to dig into the theology over the next couple weeks and really uh, dig into it. And the, the key here is not to miss that phrase, the Jewish Passover festival was near. Because what John's doing in this, is this, in this section is he's showing how, how the traditions and the festivals of Judaism are all pointing toward Jesus. They all find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so this miracle, this sign is really, really cool, but it's not actually the main point. 
to see that, you got to come back next week. Because this week, what I want to do as we go through this familiar story, if you grew up in church, is I want to slow down and I want to draw out the, the humanity in this account. And what Jesus, um, what, what the disciples were thinking and feeling in Jesus' response and the way Jesus chooses to use broken, weak people. And so, verse 5, it says, the crowd followed him. Verse 5, it says, when Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him. I just want to set a little bit of context real quick, because uh, here's what's going on. Um, and this is actually the, the one miracle, uh, or one of the very few miracles in the Gospels that are in all four accounts of Jesus' life, all four of the Gospels. And it's, it's told from different vantage points and perspectives, and every one of them gives us different details about this event. But the context here is G the disciples are tired. They're super excited because they've gone out. Jesus sent them out to do a bunch of ministry, and, and, and they go out under the power of God and cast out demons and see people healed, like cool, amazing stuff. And they come back to Jesus all excited, and there's crowds all around, and they're working nonstop. In fact, Mark tells us um, that they hadn't even had any downtime for meals. I mean, it's just intense ministry. And at this point, Jesus knows, hey, guys, as excited as you are and as, as um, much as this is like an exciting thing to do, we need to pull away and you need to refill your soul. Because if you always pour out without refilling, bad things are going to happen. And I think this is a great thing not to miss before we continue on. That some of you, um, we, we wear busyness we wear, um, oftentimes, like workaholism as kind of a badge of honor in our culture, don't we? And for some of you, you're in a really tough place. Some of you don't even really know it. See, Jesus, we see this over and over in the life of Jesus, over and over in the midst of busy ministry, doing the most important thing on the planet, in the history of the planet. Jesus regularly pulls away to spend time alone with his father, to get by himself, to recharge, to refuel, to get alone with the 12, his, his main guys, pour into just them, to get alone with two or three of his closest inner circle. That's what we call those iron sharpens iron relationships around here. He, he makes that time in order to recharge, to refuel. And if Jesus did that, I think you and I do too. See, you can't run on nonstop forever. You think you can, especially if you're type A. You, you know this stuff, but you just don't think the rules apply to you. Right? I remember uh, a couple years ago, we were doing this huge remodel build out here. And uh, just crazy working, just crazy hours all week long, like helping manage and make decisions and all that. And then, you know, I was like turning around Friday afternoon, Saturday morning going, uh-oh, I got to write a message. So, you know, like trying to work hard, getting that all done. And I took my family on vacation, actually, kind of in the middle of this. Um, and we went to this place that normally just like fills their souls and refreshes me um, personally. And as they're driving around, I just like noticed this like, it's not doing anything for me. I just feel like numb. Like this place that normally I just am so excited to be in, it refreshes me, is doing nothing for me. 
And I listened to this podcast by a guy named Kerry Newhoff. He's one of the top Christian leadership podcasters in the world. He's a pastor of this huge, thriving church up in Canada. And he was telling a story of how, like, he was at the peak of his career and his influence. He'd just done this, like, talk in front of this big conference. I think it was the Drive Conference. And, um, like, big wigs like Andy Stanley, people are like, high-fiving him, good job, and then he comes down and he gets off the plane, and within the month, basically, everything falls apart, and he descended into such a severe burnout that it took him, you know, months to get sort of back to normal, and then literally, like, a year or two to be back where he was, and he, and he tells the story of that. Here, here's what he says in his book. He said, um, my accumulated fatigue played a big role. See, fatigue has a way of accumulating in your life, doesn't it? But burnout is deeper than that. In addition to the physical component, there were spiritual, relational, and emotional components as well. Those were the things I didn't pay much attention to unless they ganged up on me and brought my life to a screeching halt. In the numbness that accompanied my burnout, I couldn't feel my faith anymore. I remember as I was... uh, Listening to this podcast, I'm like, oh, careful. (laughs) Be careful. Because you just can't run nonstop without refilling your soul. In fact, he gives 11 signs of burnout from his book, uh, Didn't See It Coming. Um, They're in chapters 11 and 12. It says this. uh, He says, here's one of the big signs that you're approaching burnout in your life. Your passion fades. Now, everyone, I mean, you go through seasons, right? And there's times in all of our lives when our passion sort of goes up or it goes down. He says this, this is more like burnout moves you to a place of sustained motivation loss where you just can't work it up anymore, right? Um, you no longer feel the highs or the lows. You just feel numb. Um, little things make you disproportionately emotional. You notice yourself like getting really angry or crying about the stupidest dumb stuff, right? Um, everyone drains you. Like just to be around people, even for extroverts sometimes, becomes draining. Uh, you're becoming cynical. And you notice this cynicism rising up in your heart. Like people keep letting you down. Your heart's been broken too many times to trust again. Uh, for our law enforcement friends, right? For you guys, a lot of times something you struggle with is you, you, you see the dark side of humanity so much that you begin to find it hard to trust anybody. Maybe you just like notice yourself becoming really negative and you used to be the guy that like championed ideas and now you just shoot down every good idea somebody comes up with at your team at work, right? Uh, nothing satisfies you. He says, he says this, sleep didn't, prayer didn't, good people didn't, recreation didn't, vacation didn't, work didn't, food didn't. That's a sign of depression, and it's also a sign you're burned out. He says you can't think straight. And we know it's true that people who are burning out or who are in burnout do dumb things that derail their lives, don't they? Some of you have friends. Some of you, that's your story. And there is a season that you so regret and you wish you could go back and redo. And in a season of burnout, you made some really dumb choices that derailed your life. He says, uh, notice that you're, you, you notice that your productivity is dropping. Like everything just gets harder to do. You're self-medicating. 
Newhoff says, I avoided drinking drugs and sex outside my marriage. My medication, which so many people go to, but he said, my medication was, ironically, more work, which just spiraled things downward. People who are burning out almost always choose self-medication over self-care. He says, you don't laugh anymore. You just like, you realize, it's been a long time since I've had a good belly laugh. Like, I just, where's my sense of humor going in life? And then he says, sleep and time off no longer refuel you. See, there's a lot. Of, I mean, we get tired all the time. But he says, there's something about when you're approaching burnout that you take three days off, and what normally ref- would have refueled you, you know, you're just mo- almost more tired than when you started. Now, Newhoff says, hey, if, if you read that list, you're like, ah, a couple of those apply to me. You're, you're probably not too bad. You won't pay attention. But if I, if, if I read that list and you're like, oh, my gosh, like almost every one of those, like six or eight of those, like the majority apply to me. You really want to pay attention to that. You want to take some action because chances are you know the right things to do. You just haven't engaged in doing it. You need to get some, somebody to talk to, a good Christian counselor, somebody to work through these things with. Maybe I'm not going to give you a lot of solutions right now, but you could pick up this little book. It's like digital versions, like five bucks. And read chapters, you can skip ahead, chapters 11, 12, and start making some progress on that. Because if Jesus needs to pull away and refresh and refuel his soul, um, I'm just guessing some of you in this room, and I know many of you, and this is a very, many of you are very type A driven, successful type people. Just guessing this may be something you're facing in your life. Now, What happens next is Jesus takes his guys and says, hey, let's come away from here. Let's go get some rest by ourselves. We're going to take a little respite, a little retreat. And they get across the the lake, and the crowds beat them there. And they literally, like, pull up on the shore. And there's this giant, needy crowd. And Jesus has compassion on them. I'm guessing the disciples not as much. They're looking for a good little weekend getaway. Jesus has compassion on them because they were a sheep, like a sheep without a shepherd. And Luke tells us, like, he welcomed them. He taught all kinds of things, taught about the kingdom of God, healed a bunch of people that needed healing. In other words, intense ministry, more of it. And see, here's a reality of life, too. In the midst of this talk about, you know, burnout and stuff, there are times and seasons that you have to dig in, that you have to go for it, that you have to recognize that this time is strategic. And see, for some, the problem isn't burnout, it's initiative. And that's the flip side of this. For some, the diagnosis would be the opposite, is, hey, you actually need some discipline. You need some initiative. You need to recognize that that you don't have all the time in the world needed to get to it. Now, you can't do that forever, can you? You'll burn out. See, uh, we have this myth of balance in our life. Um, Pastor I respect, uh, named Larry Osborne, talks about this, that we think, if I could just get balanced, it doesn't happen. He, He sees it. As more of a fulcrum, he, he, he had this great, like a balancing stick on a, uh, like on a fulcrum point. Um, and when there's times when, when 
work and career becomes heavier and you need to lean that way a little bit, right? To balance that out or lean that, lean into it a little bit more. And there's times when family, the demands are just more in, and you know this is more important. I need to actually lean in here. Balance is an illusion. You never get to a place where you just get to quit paying attention. Life just doesn't work that way, does it? It's being aware and knowing your heart, knowing where your soul is and being willing to do something about it. There are times when you have to really dig in. I love what Paul says. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not unto men. Colossians. There's something about the Christian work ethic that should be, man, we are the people who dig in, who do our work heartily, who do it as unto the Lord. But always pay attention to your soul. Don't lose sight of that. And so... These guys, they're busting it all day. They're teaching. They're preaching. They're doing hands-on ministry. And later that afternoon, Luke tells us the disciples come to Jesus, and they're like, these guys must be getting hungry, Jesus. It's getting late. We're in the wilderness. There's no food. Send them away so they they can find food and lodging. Because I'm sure they're really, like, top priority, the crowd out here, right? Just saying I know what I would be like. I am tired, right? (laughs) And it says this, uh, so verse 5, continuing on, when Jesus looked up, he said to Philip, "Um, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I love this. Philip was one of John's very first disciples. We saw this in, or Jesus' very first disciples. We saw it in chapter 1. He's from the town of Bethsaida. And so Jesus looks at him and goes, hey, Philip, it's your town, bro. You're the closest town, huh? Where are the good food trucks at? Like, where do we go get good Mexican food? That's the question I like to ask the locals, you know, whenever I'm exploring a new area, right? <laughs> we were really worried because um, our staff, this Tuesday, um, we, we, they moved our ta- taco truck. <laughs> and so we were really scared that they shut it down. So we had to do a quick investigation. And it was still open, thankfully. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, so Philip's like, you know, Jesus is like, hey, where's the good food in town? Help us out here, bro. And Philip starts doing a mental inventory of all the town's food trucks. That's not really in the Bible. I'm making that up. If you're new around here, you're like, what? I, I don't see. No, I'm making that up. And he's like, uh, and, and then it occurs to him. And he does what we so oftentimes do. Philip answered him, answered Jesus. It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Did you notice what happened right there? Jesus asked where, and Philip answers a question Jesus isn't asking with how much. Jesus asks him, hey, where can we go find some food? And Philip's like, we can't afford any food. It's like, Philip, bro, you were with Jesus. You brought, you're the first guy that brought Nathaniel to Jesus. And Jesus read Nathaniel's mail and said, you're going to see greater things than this. And then you witnessed all this crazy stuff. You're with Jesus. <laughs> Doesn't matter. He's just like thinking just on a physical plane, just on like what well, the resources I have available, like our little crew, uh, we, could, we could raid all the taco trucks in town. We don't have enough money to even give everybody a bite. 
He starts thinking of, of what he has. Instead of just looking at Jesus grinning and going, I don't know, you tell me. Right? The more successful you get in life, the more prone you are to leaning on yourself instead of Jesus. This is something I've seen over and over in people's lives. That we tend to always, and, and it seems like, um, you know, when Jesus first calls you into something, maybe you're, you're a youth, you're getting ready to go off uh, to a missions trip or something, there's often like little tiny things. We had a friend that they're like, we prayed about, we didn't have enough money for a toothpaste tube and somebody brought us one like randomly. God just provided. I've heard tons of stories like that. I just noticed as you, as you get, you know, as you move along, God doesn't want you like wasting time praying for toothpaste tubes forever. <laughs> but the faith steps just get, keep getting bigger and bigger typically. And, and here's our tendency as faith steps start getting bigger and bigger that he's called us into, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to have that conversation. Hey, he plants an idea in your heart for a ministry thing or maybe a, a work thing for, for the benefit of your family and the kingdom of God. And, and there's this thing that rises up in you. And, um, and we always have this tendency as we get older to forget that he is the God who has provided for us all along, faithfully, every step of the way, and turn it around and look at, can we provide for ourselves? Happens. And this is exactly where Philip finds himself. And I love it that Jesus, like, Jesus doesn't need Philip. He doesn't need any of these guys, right? If you know the story, he's going to, you know, there's going to be this boy. Jesus could have just looked out and gone, hey, boy, come on, empty your pockets. I'm going to use you. And your lunch. But he wants to use his guys, right? He, he wants to give them a chance to participate, to be part of this thing. Paul calls that we are co-laborers with Christ. He doesn't need you to get done the work that he's, he wants done in this world. But he wants to use you. He doesn't need you. And, and if you fumble and if you say, no, I don't think I'm interested, he'll find somebody else. Like, God's sovereign, big, overarching plans in this world will be accomplished. And in this story, um, in this account of Jesus' life, what, what, what happens is Philip fumbles. He doesn't have any faith. And just a second, we'll see that it's Andrew who's actually used. But I love it, because this is the heart of our Savior. You know, Jesus doesn't write Philip off. This is the patience of our God. He's going to continue. He's going to, okay. Well, this will impress you. Wait till you see this. I'll use Andrew this time. But he's going to go on to use Philip in powerful ways. We regularly fumble. We regularly lack faith. We regularly respond out of fear. He's still patient with us. He doesn't kick us to the curb. He's patient. He still wants to use us. That thing that you said no to years ago that you wish you could, could have gone back and had the faith and courage to do, he can still use you in spite of that. He can still use your life to accomplish great things. Sometimes the great things aren't the big things. Sometimes the great things are the smallest things that ripple on to impact people. It's being faithful to what he's called you to, right? And so next, Jesus sends his guys out on a scouting mission. Hey, <laughs> why don't you go out and see what kind of food we have, you know? Tell everybody, empty their pockets. And Andrew finds this one little boy, verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. 
Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? I love this because Andrew, like, has a little spark of faith. He goes out, he searches, he finds this boy with, like, five little barley loaves. And that's, like, these little, maybe they're pitas, maybe they're little rolls. But barley loaves are what the poorest of the poor ate. Barley loaves are what they fed the animals. Like, this wasn't the good stuff. This wasn't the yummy sourdough bread, right? This was like, you know, that store-bought gluten-free. It's like, <laughs> tried eating gluten-free for a while, right? That, that's, the, that's the stuff here. And they find this boy, and you know what? Here, here's where most of us go in this moment is we think, we go out and we look, you know, Jesus sends us out, hey, go see what you have. And we look and we see this little thing and we go, it's nothing. It's nothing. This is exactly what Andrew does, but I love that at least he brings it to Jesus. He has enough faith to bring this boy to Jesus. He doesn't just write him off out there and go, it's nothing. He brings him to Jesus. And then he goes, here's this little boy's little lunch, but it's nothing. And Jesus looks at him. I love this. And Jesus is like, uh, for Jesus, he's like, no, 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 that's not nothing. That's something. I can work with that. It's something. I can work with that. And Andrew's like, really? He's like, oh, this little nothing, this little five barley rolls, these couple sardines. They wouldn't have been like, you know, Jesus movies, these big, beautiful fish, like trophy fish that you'd hang on your wall. These are like little pickled sardines, dried with salt. Yummy. Mm. I mean, this is like the, the food of the poorest of the poor. And Jesus takes this little, little thing that, that's like, Andrew's like, it's kind of nothing, Jesus. And Jesus goes, oh, no, that's not nothing. That's something. And I can work with that. I can work with something. As I was looking at this, it just made me think of like a good Southern preacher. I'm like, this will preach right here. Like a Southern, like Southern Baptist preacher, right? Here's the point. You may feel like it's nothing, but it ain't nothing. It's something. Somebody like say amen or preach it or something. There you go. Jesus says, I can work with that. It ain't nothing. It's something. Are you hearing that? Are you hearing that? Because there's something in your life that you think is nothing that he's planted in your life that maybe he wants to use to accomplish something you, could, you couldn't even imagine. It ain't nothing. It's something. And he's placed it in your hands as he's wondering, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? And for, for whatever reason, God just works like this. All throughout Scripture, he likes to take what appears to be nothing and do something profound with it, right? He used a, a small stone in the hands of the youngest child of Jesse to slay a giant. He used a little maiden girl to lead a mighty Syrian general to be healed through the prophet Elijah. He asked a widow to pour out the very last little bit of her oil in order to multiply it and provide in a profound way. For whatever reason, our God delights to ask us to invest our little something that seems like nothing in order for him to multiply it, in order for him to do more than we could ever imagine. That's the heart of our God. 
That's the God we serve. What's that something that he's given you that you're not doing anything with? That you convinced yourself, that gift, that talent, that thing that he's placed in you, that ability, that maybe that little bit you have to give. What's that, what's that thing that you keep convincing yourself it's nothing and so you refuse to take the step because you're afraid that you're going to fail? I remember when we first launched the church, my buddy asked me like I was terrified. God is providing and making it clear, you, yes, this is, go for it. And I'm freaked out. And, and my friend Steve, he's like, well, what are you scared of? I'm like, well, I guess I'm just scared I'll fail. And he's like, well, God's asked me to do plenty of things that failed. I'm like, thanks, Steve. Because <laughs> really at the ultimate, like, at that point, I had nothing to lose, just some egg on my face. Oh, we tried, we failed, we looked silly. I'm like, all right, that's kind of silly. And see, so many of us, because you think, I just don't have it, I'm going to look stupid. If I fail, other people will, will look down on me. You, you don't do the thing God's been calling you to do. You don't take the step he's calling you to take. You don't have the conversation. You think, ah, these words, this little letter, this little email, um, this text to this person God's been laying on my heart, it's really nothing. It's not going to do anything. You don't know that. He might want to use it to do something great. What are you talking yourself out of doing because you think it's nothing? Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Can you imagine that? As they pass the shock, the amazement, as they pass that out, and it multiplies literally as they're giving it out. How is this happening? I've heard incredible stories of this, like, in modern day. Not this exact circumstance, but things unexplainably multiplying. When they had all heard enough to eat, he said to, or when they had all had enough to eat, and, and really it's like when they were full, this is the idea in the, in the Greek, they had plenty. He said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. They had as much as they wanted. Like, you know, when you were a kid and your parents took you to the all-you-can-eat buffet? Yeah, my parents took us to this place and we'd plug a quarter in for ice cream, the, the prime cut. Anybody remember that? Yeah. And they had this ice soft serve machine that you served yourself. And as kids... We would just like, like it would be that high, and you'd be walking back to your table trying not to like drop the thing, right? These so it's not a buffet. They've had all they wanted to eat. They were filled. Jesus does more than they could ever have had faith for. There's leftovers. He goes above and beyond. And this is the heart of our God. Ephesians says, to the one who can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, to him be the glory. And it's been my observation that God usually works in a little different ways than we think he will. And many times, his imagination is a lot greater than ours. I remember when, when we were praying first, when we hadn't started the church, and there's these empty office spaces where our office is now. And I prayed... We hadn't started anything yet and called the realtor, and it was way too much money, and I prayed, God, you could hold this for us. I had enough faith to pray for that one little space, 
sometime in the future. But I had no idea what God would do. I didn't have the faith till I prayed, God give us this big old building. Honestly, I'm, I'm like I'm blown away by what God's done. Because I know it's not me. I mean, I'm not that great. I don't know why you guys are here. <laughs> I'm thankful. I'm grateful that you're here. <laughs> I'm like, it must be the rest of the team, because we do have a great team, right? I'm blown away. It's like not that we're big shots or anything or extra special or better than anyone else. I'm so thankful there's wonderful churches all over this valley, right? But the point is to be obedient and faithful in the season he's called you to be. Try not to take yourself too seriously because it's him who's working, not you. I have to remind me of myself of this when people come and go, you know. Um, I remember in the early days, people like come and they're like, wow, we love it here and never saw him again. I'm like, okay. And, and, you know, you'd think my heart as a pastor would be like, well, God, uh, just, you know, be faithful and I, I trust you've got a plan. Actually, I just remembered this old country song that I remember from the 90s. Some girls don't like boys like me, but some girls do. <laughs> yeah, that's about how spiritual I am. Sorry. Uh, anybody remember that song? <laughs> I don't remember who sings it. <laughs> The point is, you be faithful, you be obedient, you take the steps that God is calling you to take in spite of your fear, because guess what? You're going to be terrified. In fact, verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they in intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is really important. This ties into... The whole, like the deeper meaning, you got to come back next week. I'll remind you of it. And here's what happens. Verse 16, Jesus dismisses. We see from the other gospels, he dismisses, tells his disciples, hey, get in the boat, go back over. I'll dismiss the crowd. He goes up on the mountain to pray. And it says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing. This is really common on the Sea of Galilee because of the, uh, the topography. It's really a huge lake. It like goes from Fruita to Palisade and almost the width of our valley. Um, huge lake. Strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. You would be too. But they had an even deeper reason than you to be frightened. See, I mean, like we love vacationing by the ocean. I love it, right? It fills me. I need my vitamin C. C, get it? Um, <laughs> I love like the ocean and the water and lakes and rivers. In, in this culture for Jewish people, the sea was the place of chaos. The sea was the place of the dead. And so they were always nervous. They were always suspicious of the sea. And now they were here in this great storm just trying to survive. Some of you, you know, like when the, the chop comes up at Powell and you're like, whoa, where'd that come from? And you're, you know, and this is the middle of the night in a rowboat. And they're freaked out. And all of a sudden they see this form walking across the water. And they're not thinking, it's Jesus. They're thinking, ghost. They're thinking, cream reaper, undertaker. Because of their culture, right? They're thinking like, oh, he's coming for our lives. This would have been their train of thought. And in the midst of that, 
Jesus is going to appear to them, right? Here's the point. Even people who walk very closely with Jesus, these are the guys closest to Jesus, often walk forward scared and confused. And I love that Jesus chooses to use them anyway. Even when Jesus is in the boat, another occasion, they freak out. (laughs) This one, I think I would have been pretty scared too. They're scared. They're confused. We love that song. uh, We like singing that song, Oceans, you know. Call me out upon the waters. It's really inspiring. It's like, yes. But when walking out onto said waters, typically the common emotion is terror and disorientation. It's inspiring to sing, but when you're actually going through these faith steps that God calls you into, you don't know how. You can't see the end of the story, right? You're terrified. When you're facing difficult situations, when you're wondering how is this going to end, when you're wondering where are you, God, you don't know in that moment. And, And what comforts me about this is the guys that Jesus chooses to use the most profoundly experience the exact same emotions as we do so often. And Jesus still chooses to use them. I remember, like, literally preaching on faith when we got the news we might not have a place to meet anymore. And I'm like, oh, great, thanks, God. But I remember all that anxiety and fear over that. I remember the anxiety once we got into this place. I told you, getting started, you know, about, like, what happens if we have to move out? And then when we had our first lease renewal, the landlord wasn't returning my emails. And I'm like, oh, no, the whole thing's going to fall apart. I remember all the stress. <clears throat> I didn't tell a lot of you. A few of you were there. I didn't tell anybody, you know. I'm like, keep it together, man. I remember the stress when we were trying to buy that dirt lot out there and going back and forth. And the stress then as we tried to buy this and the partners were wavering on the sale and all this anxiety, right? You thought like, oh, I thought you had more faith in that. No. <laughs> I, and then just this week, I'm like reminding myself of all this. And then I, f- I wake up at four in the morning. There's all this stress and anxieties. We're trying to negotiate this new parking deal. And I'm like, uh, we're going to have to park them in the mud. And I'm like, come on, man. Don't you remember everything God's done all along? This is his thing. And still I'm feeling it. You know better by now. And yet, here's the thing I know. You know better by now, so many of you. And yet, you're still struggling with that. I mean, my stuff, like the parking, whatever, that's kind of minor stuff. Some of you are, are going through, like, big deal stuff where you, you really are in a hard situation. You, you, you are really afraid. You're really struggling. You don't know how it's going to end. There's, there's big stakes, it, it may not go the way you hope, but you're praying and you're trying to trust. I love this because he comes up to the vote, and we're, this is what we're going to close with in verse 20. He said to him, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. See, in an instant, as soon as they knew, I'm, hey, hey, it's Jesus, I'm here. He just reminds them, hey, it's me, guys. I'm here. 
And that's all it took. And this is actually the fifth sign as he calms the wind and the sea. And the significance of that we're going to draw out next week because it's pretty epic. Goes to Exodus, goes to Passover. And actually, if this is your only time at church, you need to hear this. The significance that it's going to tie into is Jesus is the Passover lamb who has come and paid for the sins of the world and delivered his people. And if you're here watching baptisms or whatever today, let me just say you can have a relationship with God through faith and trust in Jesus, not on account of your own works, but by fully trusting in what he did for you. Jesus, God in the flesh, come to live a life, perfect life, to die and to rise again for you. And by faith in that, you can have eternal life. That's where the story's going. Come back next week, and I'll tease that out. But I'd be remiss if I didn't let you know that. You can have that relationship with him today. But in the midst of this, like the greatest promise he gives, he gives them and us is his presence. That I'm with you. That I will never leave you or forsake you. He repeats in the New Testament, I'm not going to leave you. I'm with you. Whatever you're going through right now, I am with you. I'm with you. That's the greatest promise. And so we lean in. We pray for him to show up in powerful ways. We're going to trust. We pray that he does. But regardless of any circumstance, the promise he's given us is he's, he's with us. And what I love about this is in the midst of this big epic account we're going to see of God's work in history and all this theology next week, the disciples are scared, confused, they have a little bit of faith, and then they doubt. But God still chooses to use them, and Jesus shows up and says, I'm here, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> and they go on to change the world. God uses people whose faith is less than stellar. Aren't you glad? He uses people who often allow fear and confusion to sometimes rule them. He takes our lack of faith and our tendency not to see potential in other people and the things and the, and the little seeds, to view them as nothing. And he goes, no, it's something. I can accomplish great things through that. So here's what I want you to do with this, really. I want you to be aware. I want you to take the opportunities in life that the Lord brings. Pay attention this week. Like, where are the moments where, when God's showing up through the Holy Spirit in your life, tapping you on the shoulder, whispering in your ear, what does that look like? Oh, you'll know. To do something that's maybe a little out of your comfort zone, a little bit that you don't know, and you really know, I think that's God. Are you going to do that? Are you going to have those conversations? Are you going to pray for those people? Are you going to step into that thing? Sometimes it's this one. I, I felt led. I, uh, last week I drove by this, I think, I think it was a single mom, Normally, uh, you know, the people on the side of the road, I'm kind of like, they're just going to use it for drugs and whatever, you know. Um, they're, especially when they're right under that sign, then you feel guilty. And, but this, I just felt led. And I remember, like, handing a little bit of money out the window. People are honking behind me, you know. I'm like, just hold on. I just felt led. She's just like, thank you so much. I don't know. But I, but I feel like that was what God had me do. You got to take those moments. You never know what he's going to do with them, right? 
for some, hey, where you're at right now, you just need to really pray and ask God. You need to commit your situation to him and just ask him, God, what is the next thing I, I know I can do? Because that's your step. God, show me the next thing. I don't know how this is going to end. I am terrified, but is there a next thing? For some of you, that's like send that email. Write that letter. Make that phone call. Send that text. Book that appointment with that counselor. Like, do the next thing. And then pray and trust him. And some of you are in that place where you're like, I literally have done everything. And it's just praying and saying, God, that's in your hands. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to remember that you're with me. Would you stand? I want to pray for you. Father, thank you so much for my friends here. And Lord, I just ask that um, in all kinds of different places and situations that you would give them hope and faith and courage and remind them that in spite of their fear, in spite of their lack of faith, you want to use their lives to accomplish your kingdom purposes, that you love them, that you care for them, that you're with them. Encourage them here today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.